Hello, legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, we're catching up with Cub member Godwin Hilly or Gotti. Gotti and I spoke about his incredible story in founding Godwin Charlie, a Melbourne fashion institution. Gotti was very honest and, and open about what was a, a tremendous story that had great successes and, and, and had deep lows. And hearing his story and, and how he overcame adversities and never gave up and, and now has achieved great things and is in a great position is something that I've related to and I can imagine all of you will too. He's an incredible guy. This was an incredible episode. Enjoy the show. Um, excuse me. Are you Mr. Godwin Hilly? I am Mr. Godwin Hilly. The Godwin Hilly? Uh, there's only one. The founder of uh, Godwin Charlie? That is correct. So you're the celebrity fashion designer, tailor, stylist, what would you call it? Um, that's kind of a fancy way of putting it, but basically I, I help people look good. You help people look good. And why do you like doing that? Do you know what? I've always had, I've always found dressing people or the basic need to clothe yourself really beautiful. Like it's, everyone has a need to do it. Mm-hmm. Like we can't walk around society naked, mm-hmm. but I have, I have the ability to influence how you show up in the world every single day. And I, and I love that. You know what else? It's kind of like if you're going to choose a business to do, you should choose something that people have to do every day. It's kind of like, you know, you could, you could theoretically, anyone could be your client. Exactly right. Exactly which is, right. Which is quite a cool And you had six stores or show, what would you call them? Showrooms? They were stores. Six stores uh, across Melbourne. That is correct. And online. And you were, and you've just kind of been a reigning king for, for, I mean, you told me you had a 10-year kind of reign as uh, almost king of the tailors here oh, in, look, in Melbourne. I, I'm not sure if I use those exact descriptive words. Oh, but My I, job is to make it sound mad. But, <laughs> but I, um, I, I felt like, you know, for those first 10 years that I was offering a, a product that could be matched by or couldn't be matched by, by many. Awesome. Well, look, I, I, like I said to you before, I want to I hear about your story because you've had a tremendously – relatable story that has seen great ups and, and some downs as, as all great stories do. And I, I just want to hear that. But, but uh, before we get into it all, um, I, I want to know uh, more about you. I mean, this is the first time we've met. Uh, where are you from? I just found out you're Maltese. Uh, you know, what was your upbringing like? Yeah. So um, uh, I'm the uh, middle child of two Maltese immigrants. Um, they moved here in 73. And, um, yeah, I have two sisters and grew up in the west side of Melbourne, so suburbs of uh, Altona and now living and residing in, in, in Williamstown. So, um, you know, I went to a Catholic all-boys school. Um, apparently, you know, the path was set from, from, from birth. You know, you, um, you don't really make that many decisions. Um, and I realised when I got to university that there was so much more to offer than just the path I had taken, which which then opened my eyes to a, a world of opportunity. But um, so what did you study? I studied a, a Bachelor of Business in Accounting and then went back and did a Bachelor of Business in Marketing. Uh, nothing, absolutely nothing to do with styling? Zero to do with styling. So uh, what was going on? Were you confused? You're following your parents' path or did you actually want to do accounting at the time? Do you know what? I was, I was a little confused. Um, all of my... I guess from the age of eight to about 17, I had one single focus and that was to become a professional basketballer. <laughs> You're a bit short for that maybe. So look, I, I had the heart, I had the will. I'm only five foot 10 and three quarters. So it didn't help. You need an extra foot. I, I needed, I needed a bit more than that. And, um, and this, look, I'm in the same boat. So no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, once I let go of that dream, it was such a big dream for me. I was kind of like, now what? Right. And thankfully I was a bit of an all rounder. I loved my sport, but loved, you know, learning. So education for me was, was always a priority. So, um, you know, and then, you know, you you enter university, um, with the hope that something will resonate. So I, I kind of started with a bit of a generalist degree, bachelor of business and, uh, 
from there it, it, uh, it then evolved. Um, and I think for me the turning point early was um, the time I spent at PwC, you know, as, as a 19 and 20-year-old. 20 20 I was exposed to a, you know, a fairly um, upmarket society of um, – not very many Europeans at the time were being uh, were being recruited, so I, I made friends with the the only Greek boy on my level, <laughs> and uh, he happened to be the sharpest dresser, and I wanted to know why, and I wanted to know why everything fit him so well, and how at the age of twenty two, twenty three, he could afford his wardrobe. It just didn't make sense, right? So, um, and that's what happened. I, I I asked the question. We got put on a job together. I found out that he was the son of a tailor. And, um, yeah, and, I, and I, I shared with him my need to find clothing that could fit me. I mean, mum, mum brought over from Malta the skill of, of dressmaking. So we grew up from the veriest, earliest of age wearing everything that mum made for us. So for me, it was normal. You know what was fun for me growing up? Going to Spotlight and Lingcraft, picking my fabric right? And having mum make for me whatever I wanted. And the designs would come from watching favourite movies on the VHS at the time, pausing the screen and mum basically either tracing or, or keeping the screen paused while she, while she cut and made and sewed um, what I wanted. And probably one of my most proudest um, pieces was the entire Chicago Bulls 92 championship warm-up tracksuit. She basically made it replica from home, the Janome at home, and pumped out this incredible um, Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls outfit. Wow. And and do you think that – so was it design? Was it uh, kind of art or was it fashion that you kind – that kind of was your passion? Instinctively, I'm a perfectionist when it comes to fit. I needed things to fit me properly. I didn't know why. I didn't know why. All I knew was that I, I was me. I had my particular shape. I was a skinny boy always growing up and everything you would buy in the retail world wouldn't suit my shape, right? So the slim guy didn't exist. The slim suit, the slim shirt, the slim whatever didn't exist. And instinctively from a very early age, I always had mum, whatever she bought, whatever she made for me was always altered. I was a pain in the ass. But I like that you kind of saw that things can be made to fit, evidence of your mum doing that for you as uh, as, a, as a kid your whole life. And then you kind of make a friend, the only other uh, uh, wog boy in your class at, right. <laughs> at BWC. And you, uh, and, and you, you kind of learn that, hey, wait a second, fashion, this, this making clothes that fit and make clothes that look good can also be how I make money. Cause that's how his dad makes money. Well, I wasn't, I was looking at it from more of a selfish lens at that point. Mm -hmm. It was, well, how can I look good? Always wanting to impress the ladies always. So how can I look my best every single day? I've got to wear one of these things every day to work. I'm 19. How do, how do I look my best? And he was the keys. His factory was the key to the kingdom. Um, and my dad's old wardrobe was my blueprint to then what I would have made for myself. Wow. Isn't it amazing how everything happens for a reason? You know, who would have thought that, uh, you know, a fashion entrepreneur uh, that's, uh, you know, had an incredible fashion company actually got his start from PwC, an accounting firm? If it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for that encounter, I don't know what I'd be well, doing. you don't know. That's don't the know. thing. No one no. knows. But, but it was, and it just shows you, like, who you meet, just having like one relationship can have a huge impact in your life. You're just one friend or one person you meet or you know, these can be some of the turning points and, and um, <laughs> little plug for Cub, you know, the more people you meet and the more opportunities you have to meet new people, you don't know what's going to come from it. You know what I mean? But Cub could be a new job. It could be playing in a sports team. What, any community that you get involved in, um, it, you know, you can find – these relationships that could change your life. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and that's, and that's been the reason why I've joined Cub. Amazing. And, and, um, you haven't been a member for that long yet. How long have you been a member for? I think it was June last year. Okay, good. So you joined in COVID. In COVID, 
um, needing needing connection. And that, so, what were you what were you feeling in uh, what were you feeling in COVID? What what was COVID like for you? Well, I was coming into my showroom every day still, so I still wanted the routine. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't seeing many customers. Those that I was seeing were, I guess, breaking, you know, COVID rules. Not really, but you know, it, before before lockdown four, people still, you know, either lived around town, still had the ability to come in. It was a safe environment. So, but a lot of the time I needed, I, I was looking for opportunities to connect, to further my, my, um, my education on, on life and business. And I thought this is a really great opportunity why, whilst I have downtime to keep learning. And, um, you know, I'd heard great things and I thought, why not? Let's, let's give it a crack. Cool. I'm so happy. There were, there were so many members, I mean, pretty much all the members in Melbourne that joined last year were joined during COVID. And, and I would say that many of them were joining for that reason, just to have connection with others going through other, you know, accomplished entrepreneurs going through this, going through a similar time and looking for, for uh, support guidance, um, to, the ability to help others as well. And, and, and just to connect. So no, I think that's awesome. And I, I want to get back to your story. So did, did this uh, Greek guy become your mentor or, or did he just, was he your inspiration? He became, um, a very good friend, a very good friend. And, um, you know, we connected on a very unique level, um, to the point that basically from day one, I had free reign in his father's factory. Um, so the process would be, you know, I've got a particular look and feel that I want. So I'd literally bring in garments that my dad had kept in the closet. Uh, Mum had already altered them so they would fit me a little bit better. They got rid of the bell bottom. And I'd be like, listen, hey, I've got these pants. Show me some fabric. Right? And he walked me out the back of their, their workshop and there'd be like just a room full of old dusty tweeds and, you know, thick wools and cottons and linens. And, and I just, I fell in love. I fell in love with finding a hidden gem. I fell in love with, with having something created that was uniquely mine. And once I, I started making these garments and people started complimenting me, then I was hooked because I knew that I was doing something that made me look good, that was uniquely me and that um, made me happy. Like the whole process of, of design, little did I know at the time, brought me happiness. And do, do you think it gave you kind of a sense of purpose, like a increased value? You know, like people were... You know, when you find, I mean, I could talk about carb, like, and I reckon most business owners would feel this. It's like, you know, you start this thing and it gives you something that's yours and it gives you something. And when it does well, like you're saying, like, or when people compliment you on and you kind of feel a a sense of purpose that, okay, my job is to do well at this is to, and it kind of, you know, you feel less lost in life because you've got something to, you've got a direction. It's not an easy direction. There's a lot of um, uh, hills and bumps and earthquakes and snakes and, and things, but you know, you, you, at least you know where you're going. And I think a lot of people in life don't actually know where they're going. Purpose for me was always front of mind. For whatever reason, my mantra was as a, as an 18, 19 year old, find what you love, and you know, you'll enjoy what you do every day. And it's and eventually the financial reward would come you know, the ability to, to, to make a living would come, you know? And so I, I just, I hadn't read any books really on self-help at that point, but I just knew instinctively that if I could find something, having had the passion of basketball for so long, having, you know, been inspired by the likes of your Michael Jordans who were known for their work ethic and doing something they loved, if I could find that in life for me, then I would win. So, um, that was always front and center. And so did you start the fashion company right away or what did you do? So no. Is, is it correct to call it a fashion company or is it? It's a fashion label. Yeah. It's it a is. fashion okay. label. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't, I, um, spent a couple of years at PwC, realized that uh, I enjoyed the dressing up part more, you know, you know, women or, or the grads, whoever was sitting around me in my pod at work after lunch, they would all come back with their shopping. And we would spend probably the first half hour 
reviewing what they'd bought. Like the, they would want my opinion on shoes, on bags, on whatever it might be. And, and, I, and I had friends and colleagues that sit with male friends would secretly email me saying, I've got a wedding this weekend or I've got a party. Can you take me shopping? So this was all happening and bubbling in the background, little to my knowledge that it would become what I do for Your a living. Work. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I took kind of that, I put, I put that experience in my toolbox and I moved on to the next thing. And that was finish my accounting degree because – Dad said it's a good few di- good discipline to finish. I agree. Yep. And it's relevant to all business anyway. Correct. Um, and during that same year, my sisters and I started a performing arts school. So I needed a job. And my job was establishing, um, at the time, it was called Melbourne Dance Exchange. It's now referred to as MDX. And uh, we built a school. We built a school uh, very quickly. Um, I, was the male, I was the male dancer model, although I didn't dance a minute in my life, but I was the male on the poster. Yeah. That, that basically was trying to attract male or young boys to dance. So we built this school and it grew, it grew quickly. I loved, I loved the community that we built. I loved that we had a brand and, um, it just, and I loved entertaining like the stage and, and, and being able to create a show at the end of the year to show parents who were paying good money. I loved all of that. So you know, that, and, I, and I stayed in there until I finished my accounting degree and then I finished how, the marketing degree. How do you degree. think that relates to the concept of styling and fashion? What, what do you think the commonality between what you were doing with the dance school and, and fashion is? Well, everything, everything requires creative focus. Everything requires planning. Um, and then eventually everything requires a performance of some, of some sh- shape or form. And then receiving a review or feedback. Right. Correct. So, um, and, you know, in any good business, if you build a good brand, if you build good values and, and a good community, then they stay loyal. And that's what I witnessed at the, at the dance school, the performing arts school. If you can create something based on good values and a good family community, right? Like it was myself, my two sisters and brother, brother-in-law. And, um, you know, it now, you know, there's 350 students and we built our own facility after two years and, um, yeah, it, I just got a real buzz from it. And it was kind of feeding your creative, um, needs while doing your accounting degree. Yep. And then eventually marketing, which I thought was my next creative step. So I finished the marketing degree, but during my, my graduating year, um, I got a job, um, by fluke. Um, I applied for a, an assistant role with the uh, festival director of L'Oreal Melbourne Fashion Festival. And this week with Robert, Robert Buckingham, was the most thrilling, exciting, um, I guess, merger of, of fashion and entertainment. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, well, like I enjoy the, I enjoy the idea of, of dressing people. I love the creative process. There's an audience there's music, there's pretty people, and I'm pretty sure everyone that's involved in here is making some money. And it excited me. It excited me that all of a sudden I thought I could, I could do something in this space. Didn't know what it was. But um, you wanted to be involved. But I thought, I, this is exciting me. I mean, it's giving me shivers now thinking about it. This excites me. And I didn't know what it was. So I, so it, I went overseas and it, it gave me a chance to reflect. And, um, and I came back um, <laughs> through to my involvement at L'Oreal and, and my graduating year, lucky to, was lucky to score a, 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 a graduate job with Publicis Mojo. It was a great ad, ad agency at the time. Had clients like uh, Cadbury and Nike and L'Oreal, big brands, loved it, hated the culture. Why? Didn't want to, didn't want to play the corporate game. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to, didn't want to like. Was it similar or different to PwC? Oh, completely different. So it was, you know, you, you turn up to work dressed as you would, any way you'd want, um, which I enjoyed, but the culture was, was just very different, but I loved how dynamic it was. It was, I was surrounded by the best brands with the brightest people. And again, I thought that was my creative outlet in business. Um, but it wasn't. And so how did you end up taking, when did you take the plunge and, and start your own, start your own thing? Well, I took another job after that as a product manager at census and it was a pretty good job, nine to five. Um, I did the job really well, but I had a lot of spare time after hours and on weekends. Um, I rekindled a, a, a friendship with with the guy from the uh, the Greek, son of the tailor, the Greek boy, Pete. Pete, and what was his dad's name? 
Uh, Tony. Tony. Yeah. Or maybe Nick, but uh, okay. Tony. And um, he'd just he'd just come back from from London. His father was retiring, and the business wasn't doing great. So they were wholesale manufacturers. And the son came back. He was brought back to save the business, and we caught up. And basically, he said to me that um, he's going to scale it down, and he wants to focus on retail. And uh, that's where I stepped in. And he basically presented the idea of me leading uh, the creative front, being the brand, the designer, all the things that had thrilled me up to that point that I had no idea would come together. And he presented this opportunity to create a brand, to do what I loved um, and to, yeah, create something from the ground up with the backing of one of Australia's greatest manufacturers. So I knew from day one, if I got the design right, I had an incredible product. The, re- the, 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 the difficulty of the operational systems and the, the business, cr- I guess, producing goods and things like that, you didn't have to worry about that. That, that was, you know, and I, I learned on, on the job. So, so the job at Sense allowed me to, outside of hours, build my portfolio of designs. My weekends, no one knew I was learning to become a tailor. I was serving customers. I was becoming a fitter. I was learning the trade. And it was the best year it was the best year. And so it, it, it was that the year Godwin Charlie was born? It was the year that uh, we gave ourselves, we made it, we made a promise myself, this guy Pete and my brother-in-law, who was also in on the idea. In on the action. That if after a year, if I, if I threw myself in and still loved it as much as I did at the beginning, that we had something. And I was 25, right? What did I have to lose? Zero, right? Still living at home. I thought, I'm going to give this a crack, red hot crack. And uh, was still loving it. End of 2006, resigned from my, uh, my, my corporate job at Census, had already designed the brand, the brand name, the label, and the swing tags. That's all I had. And uh, told my colleagues what I was about to go and do. And they were like, they weren't surprised, but they were like, but how? How are you going to do this? And I didn't quite know. All I knew was that I had a, a drive and a passion and I had the support. And, um, but I think yeah. that's a really important note to stop on because, um, that, and, and getting back to my point about so many people don't know where they're going. And when you're an entrepreneur, a business owner, you don't know how you're going to achieve things. I don't know how I'm going to get, do the next five years of cub. I, I have an idea, I can guess, and I, I make plans, but I don't know how to do it. But at least I know where I'm going. You know, and, and often people oh, how do you do that? Well, of course it's how do you do that because you haven't done it yet. You don't know how to do it. Once you do it, you know how to do it. You know, But if you know where you're going, it's it's more – and you want to go there, it's more important because then you learn the how. And people like that, oh, how, how, you know, they, they, they're never going to follow their passions like you did because, again, how? You know, they haven't got a where. And if they find a where, then you figure the, you, the how comes. Do you know what I also had? I had a strong – passion for what I didn't like, right? So for with every, with every job that I moved into, I always moved out of it with learnings. And I, and I, I called it my toolkit. I took something with me, right? And when I look at it, when I look, when I join the dots going backwards, I can see it, right? So, so I knew the biggest, the biggest thing for me was I didn't want a nine to five corporate job. I didn't want that. I didn't want to run that race, Right. So I wanted one ticket out of there and this was my ticket. And so, and so you joined uh, your friend Nick or Pete? Pete. Pete's company and um, you did it for a year to see if you – I you, did it I did it secretly around my, my full-time yeah, job. For a year. For a year. Just to see if you're passionate. Okay, the year's up and you go to – you go to oh – God, Pete or Nick? Pete. Pete. You go how <laughs> I'm screwing that up. Anyway, so you go to Pete, mate, I'm doing this, let's do it. Yep. And boom, Godwin Charlie's born. That is correct. Amazing. And what was it? Where how did you get a store? Was there a store existent? Yeah. How did you how did you kick that off? So was, how did you pay yourself before, you know, after you left your job and until you're making money? So we said that I was on fifty grand at the time. So the deal was that we would all chip in. 50 grand into a bank account, right? I could either spend it on one big Saturday night or I could make it last 
I didn't know how long, but I could make it last to the point where the business was turning over enough money to start paying me from its sales. And who's we all? My, so Pete yep. and my brother-in-law, Carl. So the, okay. the pact that the, the, the gentleman's agreement we made was that Godwin's on 50 grand. Let's put 50 grand into a bank account and he can do whatever he wants with it. Yeah. He, he's not, yeah, he's not, he's not on 50 grand annually. He's just on 50 grand forever to <laughs> see if he can make money. But I like this. I might implement this. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Laura, we're changing uh, salary <laughs> charges. And it was interesting because, you know, I was 25, there was 50 grand in a bank account that had full access to, and you know, I could either spread it out um, or, or, or spend it all at once. And, and it, I guess it taught me some, some early lessons. Well, I mean, your accounting degree probably kicked in at that point. And, um, and uh, how, what did you do? I want to I know, how did you become, how did you make it such a success? How, why does everyone know Godwin Charlie now? You know, how did you become the celebrity stylist? How did you be on the runways? And the, um, Describe to me how you got from... 50 grand forever, supposed to last you as whatever, to six show, uh, six stores, um, big brand, big personal brand, all this type of stuff. I think, I think when I look back, the magic was in the first couple of years. So I, I hadn't worked retail before, but I had a natural, a natural, uh, I could develop natural rapport with, with people. I loved, I get my energy from people and I, I fundamentally love helping people, right? So I thought, I'll just throw myself in. I'll look good. And, um, and I'll just back myself. So I was in store seven days a week. I remember, I remember the day before we opened, we were meant to open on a Monday. And I freaked out. I thought, you know, I had imposter syndrome. You know, I was next, don't forget at the time, I was next door to Ted Baker, Caliber, Arthur Gallen, uh, Nudie Jeans. Like all the, it was, Little Collins was the mecca for menswear. And I, and here I was, Godwin Charlie, who'd never worked a day of his life in retail, opening a store with his name on it. Right. So I was freaking out. So it's Monday. I booked myself in to a day spa at Werribee Mansion. And I lied, I lied in this floating tank, like panicking, thinking, what am I, what am I about to do? Right. The excitement of setting up the store, designing the product had kind of just faded away and, all, and the reality was kicking in. Tuesday came. I even didn't open at 10 a.m. I, I kept held, holding out. And I remember taking a photo with my phone at the time of my watch with my hand on the key. It was 11, 11.48 or something on the Tuesday. Opened the door. Within five minutes, two women walked in. And I was like, oh, Okay. And I just did my thing. They bought a suit each and I made my first sale. And, um, and that was it. I, I was built- it a women's tailor at that point? Yeah, I was doing men's and women's. Okay, so yeah, it men's, was. Men's okay. and women's. I thought that's how you discovered the women's part. I was like, no, wow. No, 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 no. They, they, they were my first two customers. I thought, wow, that wasn't even really what I thought this first day was going to look like. Anyway, had a really good first week, second week. All of a sudden I had a business. Within a month, you know, I, had, I think I'd taken one day off. I was exhausted. And, uh, mood. And yep. people are coming in, they're describing to you what they're looking for and you're helping it basically, it, it, were you making the clothes for them at that point or was it a line that was already produced? Both. So pretty much what I'm doing now, um, I was doing then with a slight tweak. I had been trained as a, in made to measure and as a fitter, I'd, ev- I'd even been trained in bespoke, but I wasn't offering bespoke at the time. So customs would come in. If they didn't like what they saw, if they wanted something else, I would have it made for them as well. But I loved what, what worked was that I was nimble because our factory was 10 minutes up the road. If on the Tuesday or on the Wednesday, I started to get this, this feed of customers looking for something that they can't find anywhere else, guess what I was doing after hours? Going back to the workshop, sourcing fabric, finding out supply, new suppliers, and I was completely nimble. A huge strategic advantage. And at the time I thought, this is my power. I've got the support of this factory and I can react. I don't have to plan 12 months out. I can act on the fly. And that's what I did. And I kept giving my customers what they wanted. And a few times I surprised my business partners by designing things that they were not in agreement with, but they were different. They were inspired by what I was seeing overseas, which is where I started to learn the design process and it worked. And, and if something worked, we made it again and again, and I'd kind of keep backing the winners. 
And that's how it kind of grew. And where did you draw inspiration from in regards to other designers or international designers? I, I kind of continued the theme of, of um, the early days where my father's wardrobe inspired me. At the time, the Satoralist was a new blog. And, you know, Instagram wasn't around, no Facebook. I mean, Facebook was very early days. But I loved watching people watching. And the best way to people watch someone in New York, Paris, Milan – all at once was through this blog. And at that stage, I wasn't traveling overseas twice a year. So I got all my inspiration from looking at what others were doing, how others were interpreting their own wardrobe. And that, and then I'd, I'd also get inspired from, you know, pop culture, music, film. If I saw, you know, whoever the hot actor was at the time that I knew would be, would have eyeballs, I would go and create something similar put it in my window and guess what? It worked. It's a great idea. It's just kind of like, you know, uh, men and women are going to see their famous, their famous star dressed in something and they're going to want to go find something that, that looks similar. You know, it's actually very clever marketing for a fashion company to just quickly. And the fact that you're, you had the strategic advantage of having your um, factory so close and you could quickly, you could make things very quickly. Correct. Um, uh, actually a bit off topic, but, uh, Zara, so the reasons, like the business model of Zara, the, the reason it works so well is this, the speed of production of their clothes. So Zara is able to see what the main labels make and the whole company is designed to produce similar looking clothes to the, like, I don't know, whatever, Dior or whatever other brands there are, and to then distribute them immediately through their, through their stores. So they have to do it really quick. It's speed of production so that they can match design that's, you know, the designs done by the designers is, is why Zara, it's a, a, a huge a strategic point of difference for Zara. And that's part of the reason why they're able to make, um, uh, they, they've able to, I feel like the, the owner of Zara is one of the wealthiest. He is. He's one, he's like the seventh wealthiest man or something like that. He's, or, he's, he's big time. He's I mean, very wealthy. Yeah. I mean, they, they, back, back then they were going from runway, from run, runway to show, to store in six weeks. Like, I'm not a designer. For me, I can't tell if that's long or short. It, for a traditional retail brand back then, you needed you needed planning and and manufacturing that would sometimes take nine to twelve months. These guys were going from idea, so ripping off designer labels, to their store, hanging in their stores in six weeks. Is that Zara? That's Zara. That's fast. It's it's that was and and so was that? Would you say that was a quite a strategic advantage of that you had? Yeah. Well, we we, we always had our eyes on you know best performers and, um, you know, my, my business partners, they weren't idiots. Like, you know, Pete was a really smart guy and his, his family, his father had been in the tailoring game for over, over 60 years. Right. So they, they were like the caliber of their day. You know, the father actually had, um, stores all over the country. Um, I think they had 40 stores where the stores were, um, owned 50% by, um, Pete's father and 50% by the owner, the proprietor. Half of it would be clothing, half of it was a barber, right? So these guys were kings. But then the business model failed. They couldn't run Why? it. Why? Why did that fail? I think the far, I think they just took their eye off the ball a bit. The father was very generous, trusted too many people. And I just think it just, I don't know the intricacies to be honest, but I just think that um, it, it didn't evolve. Like it was great for its time, but didn't evolve, which is a very similar story to mine. Well, I, I want to start, I want to talk about your story because uh, how, what was the before, b about that part of the story anyway, before though, what was the, what was the height of, I guess, your success with Godwin Charlie? What was, at what point were you, were you feeling amazing about what you'd done? It's a really good question. There were a few moments, but I think, do you remember I told you when I was working for L'Oreal, the fashion festival, I got that buzz from, you know, witnessing a runway, the behind the scenes. I think it was when I saw my name in lights uh, at my first um, Melbourne Spring Fashion Week. I think when I was sitting front row and my, and the models were walking out, I'd pick the music, people were paying to be there and it was my brand up on the screen. I think that was the moment. For me. And, and did you have multiple stores by that point? Yeah, I, I had, I think I had, uh, at that time I had five. And, uh, but I was also under a lot of pressure. Like I probably wasn't 
completely in the moment because it was, I was just like, wow, this is actually happening. Um, but one of my proudest moments would, would be the, um, the official outfitter for our Davis Cup teams mm-hmm. and Fed Cup. So um, I became good friends with Todd Woodbridge um, from him frequenting my store um, in South Yarra and uh, he introduced me to Tennis Australia and um, I ended up designing our national uniforms, um, which was to me one of my proudest moments. That is a hugely proud moment. Yeah. And, and, so, uh, and, and so then what happened? You mentioned that uh, something went wrong with the business model. Was it something wrong with the business? Was it something that changed with you? It was everything. Um, we couldn't replicate me. So we knew that the early success was because I was in store, I was managing the client, I was giving the experience. We felt like that wasn't scalable. So what we did was we tried to, we tried to, we had the philosophy, build it and they will come. All of our competitors had multiple stores in all the major thoroughfares. So we thought if we could perform well on Little Collins and on Chapel Street with these brands around us, let's just replicate this all over the country. So when the door came, when they came knocking to the door, Westfield Group and and Vicinity who look after Chadston and and Emporium, when they came knocking, we got excited. So we thought that we could open stores anywhere as long as we were around, you know, the Hugo Bosses, you know, all the big international. Other major brands. Other major brands. As long as we were in their kind of catchment, then people would view me as a great brand as well because I had the product to back it. I didn't have the marketing budget, but I had the product. And we thought that that could sustain our existence and it didn't. Well, I guess the difference is that if you're around them, you have to pay the same rent as them, the same cost per square meter. And because they're such big brands, because they have the marketing budget, they can charge much higher prices. And also because they're such big brands, they could probably, and they produce so much quantity, they can produce, produce the clothes at such a lower cost. Therefore, their margins are much higher. They can sustain the rents. We, as a smaller company coming in, you'll be, you'll be eaten by the rent, essentially. We were eaten by the culture of sales, going on sale. What do you mean by that? Okay. I didn't have the margin. I was making majority of it locally. Um, We started to go offshore at a very good quality to the point that no one could even pick the difference. So I was proud of that. Quality has always been front of mind for me. But And did you do that in order to try to increase your margins? Margins, the local industry was dying. Like we were the, our local factory was the last of its kind in the country. So we knew if we're not existing, if if the tailors and, 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 and cutters and pattern makers aren't, handballing their skills to their children, then what's happening to the local industry? If every design-related kid wants to become a celebrity stylist, who's going to be sewing these garments in the country? You know. And why did that industry die? Was it the wages? It just wasn't sexy. From what I could tell, it just wasn't sexy. And it, it was hard work. Um, the environments locally, they, I mean, the facility was, was getting old, Although the, the, the craftsmanship was there, but the infrastructure was getting old. And unless you were reinvesting, unless the government was supporting you, then the industry, I, I just, I saw it die. Like my head atelier, so the woman who mentored me the most, you know, she was, she was getting on. She was 60, 65, you know, looking at retirement. No one was going to replace this woman. So how was I going to get the quality? Yeah. Have you ever met Stephen Khalil? No. Do you know who he is? No. He's like a very famous wedding dress designer. He's like does all the really high-end wedding dresses, I'm assuming across the country, but obviously he's Sydney-based. He's a good friend of mine. You should definitely meet him. He has so much passion for what he does for fashion and what he, uh, and just beauty and, 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 and clothing. And, and uh, you, you remind me a lot of him. He's such a legend. You should definitely meet with him one day. Love to. Also extremely well – quite a famous uh, designer as well. Real cool guy. Um, and so uh, I want to get back to what went wrong with the store. The industry's gone down. The stores weren't able to keep up economically with, with the uh, major brands that you were, I guess, attaching to or at least wanting to be in the vicinity of. But on top of that, you said it before, you weren't able to be replicated. You, they, they, you, know, they, you couldn't have you in every store. So one of my, one of my greatest lessons 
has been the need to maintain my mental health. Um, and the stress of running that business, of being the face of the business, um, got to me. And I didn't realize it at the time, but my, but I would say I peaked performance wise after about, at about year six, year seven. And then if I look back, I deteriorated. But what were the signs? You mentioned that you didn't notice it. Mm. I can relate to this. I never feel stressed, but sometimes I feel a bit more tired than others. Sometimes, you know, did you have signs? Yeah. Did you? When I look back, yeah, definitely. Uh, fatigue, I fatigued a lot earlier. Um, Decision-making, so wasn't as decisive. Wasn't backing myself fearlessly like I was before. Wanting too many opinions. So basically, in order to scale, we, we, we had to pull me out. My focus then became on designing production, making sure the product, the stores had stock building the range, not just offering suiting, jacketing and pants. It was building a full retail business, learning that, being the face of the marketing. Having to actually produce nice stuff. Train. So I was then, all, so we thought, okay, put Gotti in front of, people call me Gotti. People put Gotti. In, I like that better, Gotti. People put Gotti in front of the, the store managers and he'll, he'll train them once a month when new stock comes in. And it all sounds good, but it's exhausting, you know, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to maintain relationships. I'm trying to, you know, enjoy. When another key indicator was that when I started to plateau in terms of my my enthusiasm, like it became started to feel more like going to work rather than like I've got so much I need to do today. I want to do it all, right? And um, yeah, and and I guess in 2016 when I was thrown some curveballs, both personally in relationships and in business. My resilience, so my shield, the protective shield that protected me for so long, was being attacked and penetrated. And a blow that would normally just give me a bit of a, an itch on the cheek was now bruising, right? And I felt like I couldn't lead as much anymore. Like I felt like I was, I was taking a step back in that regard. And... Um, I was unable to make good decisions and relying way too much, way too much on my business partners who weren't in touch with the business as much as I would, but yet I would resort to asking them for their opinion, but also be led by their desires of what the business should be, right? And that, and that was my greatest failing. It, sound, it sounds almost as if you were just so exhausted that you couldn't lead anymore because to lead, you need the energy. You need the ego to back yourself. You need the energy to actually uh, fulfill your targets, to, to, you know, to, to figure the how, to get to the where. You know, it sounds like you were just exhausted to the point where you, you needed almost to, to uh, go, you know, as cyclists when you go behind the cyclists in front of you, it's easier to cycle because the wind helps you. You almost needed to go behind someone just to, to, to keep coasting along. And no one had the drive and passion for the business like I did. Mm. So there was the, the people who I thought I was, I was sailing behind, they had families, they had other issues they were dealing with, they had other businesses they were dealing with, they had nine to fives they were dealing with. And without that strong leadership, it became, it became a monotonous business in the end that we, we tried to just copy our, not co well, copy the, the execution of our, of our neighbors rather than leading. Like I, I was pioneering what I was doing in the first five years. I know that, right? But once we became with scale more like our neighbors with, with no cut through, like I didn't evolve. All of a sudden I'm in Chadston across, across the thoroughfare is Zara. To my right is Calvin Klein. Now I'm up against the biggest boys in the world Without the, without the, the balance sheet, I'm not I'm I'm not feeling strong anymore, and I'm almost and I'm in, for the first time intimidated. That would suck, big time. Yeah, that would totally suck. And looking back at it, how could you have avoided that? What were the lessons you learned from that? I actually just because it's a good time before you answer that, just it's good timing because you mentioned Zara. 
yeah. as one of the big boys. Do you know how much the guy that owns Zara is worth? Tell me. Just to put it in perspective who you were fighting, his name is Amancio Ortega and he is now the third richest man on the planet with a net worth of $75 billion, surpassed Amazon's Jeff Bezos to take third place on Forbes Billionaire's ranking. What? This might not be the right date, but at one point he was the third Rich man, because I'm fairly certain Bezos is is the second at the moment. I read that yesterday. So this could have been last year. But, That's crazy. But still, $75 billion. And uh, your tired ass was trying to take on, take on, uh, I guess, juggernaut organizations with, with funds like this. What did you learn? What did you learn from uh, – what have you learned from this? How would you – how could you avoid this? How could this not have happened? Well, mid-2016, I learned that um – my once good sleeping habits had deteriorated to the point that um, I would be a you know consistent seven and a half hours sleep per night. Started dropping to five, four, three. Panic sets in. You're not sleeping, right? So, and I didn't have the tools to manage that. So all of a sudden, I'm up at night looking up apps on how to sleep, listening to rainfall and rainforests, and you know, and this is this is before mental health was was. A topic thing, of a discussion, topic, right? So I'm, I'm here trying to learn from my iPhone how to sleep, right? Because without sleep, you're nothing. So all of a sudden, um, the stress of my life became became a focus in the early hours of the morning, and it was awful. Um, I was, you know, we just opened our Chadston store and our Westfield store. I'd just gotten engaged, and I felt like a mess. I was deeply, deeply, um, depressed and wasn't sleeping. But how could you have avoided this? Looking back at it yep. in hindsight, so, how could this have not happened? Yep. So because once, this is a trap. Yeah. Let me tell you that I, I think most business owners will fall into it at, at some point in their career. So uh, identifying how to avoid it, I think it would be hugely valuable for every listener. So I had an executive coach at the time who pulled me out of the gutter out of the deep hole that I was in. And the first thing we worked on was values, right? I had this values card based, she did, she dumbed it right down, right? I basically had, had an exercise. I had to print off nine A4 pieces of paper and there were values written on each of these squares. And I had to laminate the nine pages, then cut out all of these values and then spend my time allocating them between most important, important, and not relevant to the point where I had to go from about 300 values that were written on these cards to five. That was life-changing for me. Uh, my values weren't defined. And once, once I left the nest of my, my family household and the love and support of my, of my parents, I was fending for myself without clear guidance, clear tracks and for me defining my values and, and and starting to live my life based on that and nothing else was game changer for me game changer um in support of that i um took up meditation uh did a course and became absolutely obsessed with with the process of, of being still and waking up each day with 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 the purpose of of resting the mind and uh, to the point now that, you know, I now, I'm up at five every day and my routine goes for an hour and a half. But see, to me, these sound like things, these are remedies to get back to track from a low point. Yep. What I think, or what I want to discover more or discuss more is how not to get to the low point. For example, you, uh, you scaled very quickly. Right, you you ended up with six from one. How long did it take you to get five stores, for example? Uh, we got to five in about five years, eight years, seven eight years, years, seven years. Yeah. So that's that's fast scale. But regardless of 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 years or time, it's changing the business, and scaling can be one of the most dangerous things, especially if the business is very reliant on one person to drive it, and that person is trying to be at all the stores, is trying to be everything. It, that in itself, for example, if you had done three stores do you think that it would have been better off do you think you would have been less do you think you could have handled three stores as one person yes 
And so thinking back at it, would you have done three stores and rather than potentially, um, rather than try, uh, rather than com- compare to the, I don't know, the, the, the large scale brands, you know, the, the common brands you see up the street. Yeah, what was sexy? Uh, yeah, what was sexy have been your brand, your values, you, more independent, opposite to them. If they're on Collins Street up on the Paris end of thing, you would be on Little Collins Street. The, oh, I guess that could be kind of be opposite to Collins on Little Collins Street, wherever they wherever I don't know you deemed fit. You know, with, with a different rent, with a different style. Of, I, I know I'm just trying to talk. I'm just trying to like I'm trying to think back at what w- did, did you lose your way because you weren't being you, which is kind of what I felt because you're saying about the values. Yeah, you know, I I had not set personal goals, which then aligned with the goals of the business. So all of a sudden, once the business grew and I was relying on others to make commercial decisions on my behalf, I was just saying yes. And basically I wasn't making informed decisions. Um, so I needed to define my values first. They needed to align with the business. And if, and if, and if they weren't aligning, I had to have the conversations. I had to have the discussions and I had to push back at the business partners that I had at the time who were a lot more boist- a lot more of a mm. demanding of, 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 of conversation in our business meetings than I was, I had to push back. And if they weren't aligned, then I wouldn't move. I would say, no, I'm not moving forward. I don't, I don't, I don't support this. And without my support, this business could not exist. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the strategy of the business between the business partners was different, which, which took the business into different directions in the sense. You know, the, the, the conceptual direction and then the financial direction, uh, they were different. We, we weren't making the most sound business decisions. We were, we were running off adrenaline. We were running off what our competitors were doing in terms of store rollout. And we didn't have, we didn't have the balance sheet. It's pure and simple. When I look back, and I, I mean, it's, that's why we, 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 we tried to do it all on our own. Mm. The, we tried to do everything without the aid of let's call it mentors, people who had gone before us, we thought that we had all the answers and it's a very, very difficult space to try and navigate on your own. But that was because you were doing so well, you know, and, and, and you see it happen often, particularly with young men, I see it happen. They do well. They suddenly think they're, um, they're special, that they're, they're the one, they've got the answer, their confidence kicks, takes over and, um, and then they start making poor decisions. <laughs> My old man always used to say to me, I don't know if this quote directly relates to this conversation, but I think it does. He said, just because you're richer than your neighbor doesn't mean you're rich. You know what I mean? And, and I like saying that to uh, a lot of members. Um, when I can, like I've seen, I, I see members often, they'll do really well. They'll sell a company and then suddenly they, they, they cash in and they start investing in all these different companies, which have nothing to do with their area of expertise. Businesses in different industries are, it's like a whole other world. You can't understand it. You need to specialize in, in what you do. And what happens to them, and almost always they will lose their money. It's a guarantee. And what happens to them is because they, you know, they did so well in one business and uh, they made money. Suddenly they, they feel their, this, their ego and it's normal. I get this too. Every, everyone gets it. You get this ego. It's like, yes, I can do it. I can do anything. It, you can't. And to relate the quote to it, it's just saying just because you're, you know, just because you're something doesn't mean you're everything. Doesn't mean you can do everything. And, and that's, that's a very natural um, feeling. But I think if people are aware of it, they're much better equipped to, to handle the ego as you go up because you need the ego to get there, but the ego gets too big and then it can fuck you. Exactly. And, and that's, and that's, and because that ego of, of my other business partners and, and mine were, were rubbing the wrong way. Um, not that there was any internal conflict, but when she hit the fan, it wasn't pretty. And, um, you know, and when I had, I had a, I had a nervous breakdown in 2016, as we just opened our Chadston store, I was out of the business for four months, right? Trying to figure out how to sleep again, um, how to exist without the support of medication. 
had it had a I and purpose had a huge thing to do with it at the time. I didn't know why I was waking up in the morning. Uh, for what purpose? And I was and I got to a point where I hated the business. I resented it. I I ended a relation. I ended my engagement. I was four months from getting married. Ended an engagement that um, you know in hindsight was was you know it was the right thing to do for me personally, but it was another blow to my to my health. And um, but once I regained control over purpose, values, and and health, general health, then the passion that had driven me to that point just came back. Yeah, you just need to take care of yourself. If you if you, if, if yourself is screwed, you can't do you can't do anything else. You know you you need to, and everything happens for a reason. And but you know breaking up a engagement, it's still a loss. Mm. You know, you still feel the loss. And so what happened? You shut the company. Yeah, well, what we tried to do was we tried to when I came back after my my illness, call it. Um, you know, we realized that the business needed we'd scaled too aggressively with with and we needed to scale back. Um so I was healthy enough and now resilient enough I felt to try and get underneath the numbers and understand what we had to do. Um brought in a business coach to help me navigate um, the business, what stores were healthy, what weren't, you know, fundamental things. And we, and our, our aim was to, if we could scale it back to maybe one or two stores with, with an online presence, because our online business was actually doing really well, that we had a business still. But um, in the end, you know, the business partnership um, became sour. It sour. Sounded, it sounded that way. Um, and we made the decision that it was in everybody's best interest, that we looked after creditors, staff, and uh, anyone who had any any connection with the business first to look after them. And I would lead the business during that wind down. So um, company then went into liquidation. Um, it was a very sad realisation, but it felt like the right thing to do. And uh, six months after that, um, I got a phone call from Quartamentha. And uh, I was in a coffee shop. Who's Quartamentha? They're the they were the liquidators. Okay. Big liquidators. Okay. And they said to me, "What are you up to?" I said, "Oh, you know, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm actually I said actually, I'm I'm back helping people in the styling space, and um, I'm really enjoying it again. And I'm actually thinking of buying back the brand, just so I could protect my name because my name's quite unique." And, and everyone knows your brand. Yeah. So I thought I didn't want this thing to end up in the wrong hands and end up some, you know, suit liquidation outlet. Right. And that's my name. So I thought, okay, I'm still enjoying styling, helping people, you know, look their best, still doing other gigs. But I thought I wanted to protect the name. I said, look, we've got something else we want to offer you. We've got a group that are interested in your brand. Um, you inspired them and they want you to be part of it because they believe they've got a better business model for you that you should consider. And I, I did want to play. I did not want to play because I'd, I'd lost everything. I'd, I was healthy again and I didn't want to get back into retail, but I convinced myself. I took a, I took a friend, my business, my, my brother-in-law and a business, business advisor to this meeting. And they convinced me that they had the, the, the structures and the, the business model to, to go again and to use all the brand equity that I'd built, not only in, in the brand name, but in myself to propel it forward. And, uh, I said, look, under one condition, I want to get on a plane and I want to go and, uh, do basically a personal order and all the things you're telling me in terms of supply chain, which I did. Um, and, uh, was blown away The you know, the, the manufacturer was, you know, making for Burberry and all the big European brands. And I thought, that's all I needed to see. I needed to know that I was in the best hands because I knew I had the eye and the design aesthetic to, to produce the garment, but I needed the backing of a, of a manufacturer. And, uh, you know, went again, and this time, instead of filling stores with stock and rolling out multiple stores, we thought we'd, we'd create a, a showroom experience where I would design everything for men and women as samples, as I would as if I had a store network, but we would, you would come in for your fitting. Um, that fitting would get stored 
And then after that fitting was captured, you could literally just point at whatever you wanted and we would make it for you and deliver it to you in four weeks. Four weeks is a very quick time for something to be tailor-made. It I is. know that for a fact because I've used a lot of tailors before. Yep. So our gold standard is, is four with the aim to get that down even further. Um, but at the moment it's four and… And that's what it is now. So currently… Yep. Obviously, I'm, I'm going to come over after this like we discussed, but, <laughs> but currently, so I'd come in, you'll measure me up, and then either I can design my own thing from scratch, you can show me the books, is that correct? Well, I lead with design first, so I've done all the hard work. Yep. So, so my customers loved that I created looks, Yep. right? My you, you've done half the job. I've, I've done, like, taken all the guesswork out. All you need to do is have faith that I'm going to make you a garment that will fit that is backed by my design integrity and aesthetic and okay so i walk it. in you fit me so you, i get my measurements and then i'm able to choose any of the pieces the the beautiful garments that you've designed yep and it will be tailor made to fit my body perfectly it will be and made i'll get that in 4 weeks or less yep it will be made uh, and to your other point if you see a design that you like but prefer it in another fabric that you see on another garment or you've seen something on Instagram or somewhere else or on somebody else, I can source that fabric for you and we can create magic together that way. Incredible. And so where's this store now? 165 Flinders Lane. Uh, it's the corner of Hosier Lane. So those that know Melbourne, it's a very famous corner because it's that graffiti laneway that tourists love. And I'm on level two. So my showroom basically uh, looks down onto Hosier Lane. So I get all the colour and commotion of Hosier Lane. And um, basically it's, it's one half men's, one half women's, and that's where it all happens. Incredible. And how long has this one been open for? Uh, just over a year. And how are you doing personally? I'm loving life. I'm motivated. Um, I'm Designing some mad stuff. I'm designing and I'm in my creative element. And I love being customer facing again. Like I get so much from that and it takes me back to the early days where I learned so much from the customer. And now a lot of my design is with the customer at the center of, of all decisions. You've got to get me in some of your garments. I reckon I'd get half the club wearing this stuff. <laughs> well, look, I, you know, I, I'd love to have you in and at least, at least show you what I, what I do. And, you know, it's up to you whether you uh, want to move forward. And so you're in this great position now. You've got a great business. You love what you do. You're in a great state of mind. I guess the next question is how do you make sure you stay there? Well, you know, as business owners, when you do something you love, you can easily fall into the trap of, you know, doing whatever it takes. And, at, and, and as a, a, a consequence of that, we forget the most important things. And that's our, our health, our physical health and our mental health. Um, and another really important third thing is, is relationships. You know, we can't exist without these three things. And when you focus entirely on your business and that dream that you have, these things can be left behind and that, that's when you start to become unstuck. That's when your decisiveness is no longer there. That's when you're no longer sleeping and you get fatigued and you realise why you're not performing anymore. Do you know I think the, the, the one, uh, of those three things, the one that I think is the most important and it's probably one that happens or is one of the most easy to happen for a business owner, it happens to me, is the relationships one. I'm in the business of creating relationships but – I work hard and then I'm so tired after I work that I can't be bothered talking to anyone or, or seeing anyone or having to think about, you know, uh, being upbeat that you don't want to see anyone. And, and you, you, because you're tired doing what you do, you lose those relationships or you, you don't lose them, but you're not engaged in them. Well, I have a tool. I have a tool for that. It's one thing I've learned in the last probably 18 months. And that's um, what I've been taught to be known as time blocking, Right. So what I now do, I now know what's important, right? I now know what needs to be firing at all cylinders at all times for me to be the best leader and the best business owner, right? So what I do every Sunday evening around sort of 5, 6 p.m. after my weekend, I basically pull out my diary and I, I assess my week ahead and I, and I time block and I do it color-coded as well. So at any point in time during the week, I can glance at my diary and I know that black is personal, um, you know, red is work-related, green is time for my girlfriend, now my fiancé, um, 
and uh, and yellow are friends and family. So I have to plan my week to make sure I, I don't fall into those bad habits again. Congratulations on the whole fiancé thing too. Thank you. And 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 we have a little boy on the way too. No so way. Yeah, it's, it's all happening. It's oh, all happening. I see that. That's a yeah. beautiful story. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm so happy for you. And thank you so much. Well, we're very proud to have you as a member. Uh, thank you so much for being uh, super honest and and sharing uh, just such a great story. So many lessons in really just uh, overcoming adversities. And even when you fall, just get back up and and, and do and do better than before. Do better what's better for you. You know what I mean? And that sounds like what you've done. You, you, you're doing your passion. You're doing what you enjoy. You love it and you're just doing super well at it. Um, if anyone wants to uh, go to your website, what is it? Godwincharlie.com and that's Charlie with just an I at the end. And the store, you've already said it, but say it again. Where is it? Uh, level 2, 165, Flinders Lane in Melbourne. Awesome. And everything's everything – Everything you see in the showroom is available online as well. Is, is it walk-in or appointment? or uh, Mainly appointment. We prefer appointment because obviously in these COVID days, I don't like the showroom being too full. But it's, it's, it's appointment. That way you get me for an hour, my full attention for an hour at a minimum. If, if, you, if you do turn up and I'm free, happy days. If not, we'll just schedule a time. Book people. And if you want more information uh, uh, about Gotti, um, uh, his LinkedIn, his, his favorite book, lessons, quotes, go to cub.club forward slash podcast. It'll be there. It'll be square. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to meet you for the first time on the podcast as well. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed the show.